Welcome to another Sunday morning Salvation by Grace message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly in Smyrna, Tennessee. Grab your Bible and join the congregation of GCA along with our teaching pastor, Jim McClarty. It is a new year. Let's start a new thing. Because after all, we're under a new covenant. So we're going to do something new, something that we have not ever done here at GCA. It has been our practice. It has been our tradition to go through books of the Bible verse by verse in order to give you a thorough biblical education. We have taught through all the books of the New Testament, some twice. We've taught through the majority of the books of the Old Testament, and we did it chronologically so that we could place the (coughs) prophets in their appropriate historic setting and uh, context. But I have never taken the time to do just a series of topical messages. And once I put out the idea that I was going to do a series of topical messages, and that I wanted suggestions from people, the suggestions started pouring in. And I was looking over the list of suggestions because I'm keeping a running word file so that I can keep up with the various suggestions. And the one thing I noticed about them was they were all good ideas. There was just no place to start. There was no place to dive in. And so I thought, well, you know, if we're going to do this and we're going to do it right, we have to go back to the beginning. Now, two weeks ago, when we finished the book of Romans, I said to you, we're going to go back to the beginning. And that's exactly what we're going to do this morning and next week. We're going to talk about why the Bible What is the Bible? Why do we trust the Bible? How do we know that the Bible is the word of God? And I'm going to give you a great many details about the Bible, the history of the Bible, the canonicity of the Bible, how it is that we have these particular 66 books, how it is that we trust that we can rest our lives on this book. So that's what we're going to do for the next couple of weeks. And I'm going to start at the very basic details. And the reason I'm going to do that is I have a bad habit of assuming that people just know things. But I'm going to start by assuming that you don't really know much of anything. If you were new to the Bible, this would be the right series to start with. Because we're going to talk about and explain the Bible. Some of these details, you're going to say, yeah, yeah, I know that. We've heard that. I understand. Here's what I liken it to. Only twice in my whole life have I ever bought a new car. The most recent new car that I ever bought was the uh, Honda CRV that you all used to see me drive that I drove forever. Well, when I went to pick up that car, I had ordered it because I bought it through a friend of a friend. So I had never laid eyes on it, had never test driven it, but I knew that was the car I wanted. And so I called and I ordered the car, and I ordered the particular stuff I wanted on it. 
When I went to pick up the car, I had the money to pay for half of it, finance the other half. And so when we finished the paperwork, that car was technically mine. This is now my car. And because I had special ordered it, I knew what my car was going to look like. I knew the color. I knew the features it was going to have on it. That was my car, and I knew all about it. Except that I didn't know all about it. And I didn't know that I didn't know all about it. I knew general things about it because it's a car, so I figured brake, gas pedal, steering wheel. I knew the basics. But the salesman, the last thing that he did was that he took me to my car and he showed me all the details I didn't know. I didn't know that there was a hidden cigarette lighter in the back of the CRV. I wouldn't have known that if he hadn't shown me. I would not have known that the cover for the spare tire could be taken out, had legs on it, and you could use it as a card table in case you're ever driving down the freeway and want to break out in pinochle. I wouldn't have known that, except that he showed it to me. I never used it, but it existed, and I wouldn't have known it unless he showed me. I wouldn't have known how to turn on the windshield wipers. But he showed me. So he went through my car and showed me all the stuff I didn't know about it. And I wouldn't have known it if he didn't take the time to go through the details. Do you get what I'm driving at? Yep. So we're going to go through the details here because even though you have a Bible and even though you generally kind of know your Bible, there's still, as we go through the details, going to be things that you say, I never knew that. I didn't realize that, and I wouldn't have realized it unless somebody pointed it out to me. So that's really what this morning is all about. For instance, do you know where we get the word Bible? We say it all the time, the Bible. The Koine Greek word, ta biblia, which is the word that has just kind of migrated into the English language as Bible, but you still use that word biblia. You don't even change the spelling Though it migrated into the English language, the letters stayed the same every time that you wrote a paper in high school or college. At the end of it, you had to write a bibliography. And that means a reference to the books that I used as reference to write this paper. Well, that's what biblia means. Biblia means the books. So even though we refer to the Bible as a book, it's actually a collection of books. It's a collection of books, 66 books. The Old Testament has 39 books. The New Testament has 27 books. We believe that the Bible is the very word of God. And we're going to talk about that this morning. Why do we believe that? We may not get into all the details and all the proofs until next week. But we believe that this is the very word of God. Now, if the Bible is the very word of God, that means that the Bible is its own best authority on itself. Understand what that means? That means there is no other authority, there is no other book or collection of books that has superior weight of evidence that it can sit in judgment on the Bible. The Bible is the compendium of God's word that sits in judgment on every other writing in human history. 
The Bible is sometimes referred to as scripture. That comes from the Latin word scriptura, which just means writing. Even in the New Testament, you will see New Testament authors use the word scripture, and they're referring backwards to the Old Testament, which is the writing that was handed down to them by the various forefathers and prophets. So whether you call it the Bible or whether you call it scripture, you're still getting back to it is the writing of books. But what does that mean? How did we get this particular writing of these particular books? Because there are a lot of other books that have been written through the course of history. Why do we believe that these books in particular are the very word of God? While there are other books that claim to be the word of God that we say aren't. For instance, the Book of Mormon. Supposedly that was handed to Joseph Smith by an angel named Moroni, and that is the very word of God according to itself. But does it have the evidence, does it have the proof within itself to prove that it is, in fact, the word of God? I'm going to tell you now it doesn't. The Bible is the only book in all of human history that actually has self-evidentiary proof within itself to prove its own veracity and its own authority. The Bible, as we have it right now, is 66 books. None of the original manuscripts that the Bible is based on currently exist. However, we do have in excess of 5,800 early manuscripts, some dating back to the early 2nd century. But once you add the Coptic copies, the Latin copies, the Syriac copies... We have bits and pieces that make up more than 24,000 copies of the New Testament, some of which date back to within 40 to 70 years of the original writing. Now, that's a really important fact. I want you to hold on to that fact. From a literary standpoint, the Bible is the best attested book in all of human history. What I mean by best attested is, when you look at any piece of ancient literature, there was a time when that bit of literature, whatever it is, say it's the works of Plato, at some point that was written down. But we don't have the original document, the original writing. And so that means that there is a course of history between when it was written and the earliest copies of it that we now have. Most ancient literature, there is a gap of time ranging anywhere from 500 to several thousand years between the original writing and the earliest copies that we have extant to this day. And we only have a limited number of copies. So we just assume that the copies we now have, copies of copies, that the copies we have are in fact what those ancient writers meant to write, but we have no way of knowing for sure because of the gap of time between when it was originally written and the earliest copies that we now have. That's not the way it works with the Bible. With the Bible, the gap of time between the original writing And the earliest copies we have, 40 to 70 years, which means there's no time for historic amendations. There's no time for 
people to have gotten a hold of the copies and changed the copies, we can have great confidence that what we're reading now in the New Testament in our Bibles is in fact what the original copies said. So we then argue that those original copies, that original writing, was inspired by God. And the Bible itself has the internal evidence that it is in fact inspired by God. The Bible was written by approximately 40 different men. I say approximately because there are a couple of books, like the book of Hebrews, that we still kind of argue about. Even though the early church used to bind the book of Hebrews with the writing of Paul, there has been historically some argumentation about some books. So approximately 40 different men. They wrote over a period of 1,500 years, roughly the time of Moses until the time of John on the Isle of Patmos writing Revelation. And yet, despite that fact, they're all in agreement with each other. They all lead to this concept that I'm building on, this idea of inspiration. And the evidence is that there is actually one unifying author behind all of it because over the course of these 1,500 years, these 40 different men under different situations at different times, nevertheless, as you've seen through our teaching in the Bible, they all agree. They all coincide with each other. They all work together like a tapestry interwoven with each other. That can't happen by merely human design. Because what the writers of the Bible did not do was say, now, anybody else who adds to this, this is what I'd like you to say. Instead, what we have is various authors, various places, various times, all leading to the same conclusion, the same theology, all talking about the same God. As a consequence, we say that the Bible was inspired by the very spirit of God. Otherwise, this couldn't have happened. If you tell human beings a story, let's say that I told Kellen a story and then said, now go convey that story to Kenneth back there. What are the chances that he's going to say exactly what I said to him? Yeah, he himself admits that he would probably not get it right. 1,500 years, 40 different authors, multiple different areas of the Middle East. And yet they all write the same theology. They all come away with the same overarching understanding of who God is and what God's like. There's not one biblical author who says, well, he's not that omnipotent. There's not one author that varies, that veers off from the story that God intended to tell through these various different men through all these years in all these different places. So that's one of the reasons that we say that the Bible is the inspired word of God. There are more evidences, and we're going to look at those as we move on. Most of the Old Testament is written in Hebrew, except parts of Daniel and Nehemiah that were written in Aramaic, and the New Testament was written in Koine Greek. So there are really only three languages in the Bible that helps with translation Because these are languages that are knowable enough that it's not as if we come across a lot of words or a lot of phrases that we go, have no idea what that means. Our Bible 
is divided into two large sections based on the pre-Christ Jewish books and the post-Christ story of the growth of the church. We call that the Old Testament and the New Testament. Now, the Old Testament also contains several covenants. You don't find covenants being formed in the same way in the New Testament. Every covenant that you find is in the Old Testament. You find them coming to fruition in the New Testament. But these Old Testament covenants make it kind of confusing because there is what Paul refers to as the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. Jeremiah talks about it. The new covenant. Isaiah talks about the promise of a new covenant coming. So within the Bible, you have old and new covenant, but they don't correspond with the old and new testament. So that's where it gets kind of confusing because the word covenant and the word testament are very, very similar. The Hebrew word for covenant is berit, which means a bond or like a fetter. In the Greek language, That same word is translated as syntheke, which means a binding together, or diatheke, which actually means a will or a testament. If you've ever written up your will for what you want to have happen after you die, you've written a last will and testament. That's where that idea, that concept of testament comes in. So we refer to the Old Testament and the New Testament, but the beginning of the New Testament in those portions of the Gospels where they are still writing about Jesus walking and talking on the planet, they are still under the old covenant. It's not until Jesus dies that you see the inception of the new covenant. So when you talk about testaments and covenants, you have to be very specific. The old covenant and the new covenant are not the same as the Old Testament and the New Testament. Make sense? Yes, sir. So let's talk about the Old Testament. Traditionally, among the Jews, they divided their books into four large categories. They used to refer to it as the law, the history, the poetry, and the prophecy. The first five books make up the law. That's Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. We refer to those sometimes as Pentateuch. Penta, five. It's the five books, the five writings. There are 12 history books. Joshua, Judges, Ruth, 1st and 2nd Samuel, 1st and 2nd Kings, 1st and 2nd Chronicles, Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther. Those are the history books. There are five poetry books. Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Song of Solomon. There are 17 prophecy books that are also divided into two groups. We refer to them as the major and the minor prophets. The difference between the major and the minor prophets is the flat third. (laughs) Sorry, I had to do that. No, the difference is the length. The major prophets are the longer books. The shorter books are referred to as minor prophets. So the major prophets would be Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, and Daniel. While the minor prophets are Hosea, Nahum, Joel, Habakkuk, 
Amos, Zephaniah, Obadiah, Haggai, Jonah, Zechariah, Micah, and Malachi. Now, the New Testament is divided along these same kind of lines, broken into four lines of thinking, the Gospels, the history, the epistles or the letters, and the prophecies. By the way, do you know that that's what the word epistles means? Epistles means the letters. The Gospels are Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. The history is the book of Acts. The epistles are Romans, Titus, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, Galatians, Hebrews, Ephesians, James, Philippians, 1 Peter, 2 Peter, Colossians, 1 John, 2 John, 3 John, 1 Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians, Jude, 1 Timothy, and 2 Timothy, and of course the prophecy is Revelation. So let's talk about historic divisions then, because as you know, the Old Testament that we have now is not divided up into four categories. The Jews these days divided up into three categories into something called the Tanakh. We've talked about the Tanakh here before. It is three Hebrew letters that if they were transliterated into English are T and N and K. The Tanakh then is the Torah and the Nevi'im and the Ketuvim, which means basically the books of the law, the books of Moses, the Pentateuch, that's the Torah, and then the prophecy, and then the writing. Also, if you pick up your Bible and you open it and you're looking for differences between what we have now and what was the original manuscript, one of the most glaring additions is the fact that your Bible has chapters and verses And when, let's say, the Apostle Paul sat down to write, he was not writing chapters and verses. He was not adding versification. He was just writing a letter the same way that you would write a letter. And if you were to write a letter to some loved one and you decided to start versifying it, that would be odd. It would also break up the flow of what you are writing. I argue that some of the greatest damage that has been done in our modern Bibles is the versification because of people thinking that any single verse is a complete thought simply by virtue of the fact that it has numerical value. John 3.16, there's a good example. The very fact that people can write John 3.16 on a sign and hold it up in the end zone at a football game and think that the whole Bible is represented by that one verse, that couldn't exist if there wasn't a 3.16 to be had. So how is it then that these letters, this historic writing, how is it that that stuff became divided up into chapters and verses? In antiquity, Hebrew texts were divided into basically what we would call paragraphs. They referred to them as parashat. Those were identified by two letters of the Hebrew alphabet. The pe indicated the open of a paragraph. And uh, the semek, if I'm saying that right, indicated a closed paragraph. So even the Hebrew scripture 
had a basic form, the earliest known copies of the book of Isaiah from the Dead Sea Scrolls, we find these two Hebrew letters being used for their paragraph divisions. The Masoretic texts are slightly different than the Hebrew text, but at least the form exists. That's what I want you to understand. The Hebrew Bible was also divided into some larger sections. In Israel, the five books of Moses were divided into 154 sections so that they could be read through out loud in the weekly worship over the course of three years. In Babylonia, the Torah was divided into 53 or 54 sections so that it could be read out through one year. So very early on, the Jews began dividing up their scripture because they understood that it was near impossible to get people together on a regular basis and then read the entire Pentateuch. So you had to divide it up so that it could be read and understood in pieces. By the 4th century... The New Testament was divided into topical sections that were known as kephaliah, which means the head or the heading. Eusebius of Caesarea divided the Gospels into parts that he listed as tables or canons, but neither of those systems really corresponds with our modern chapter divisions. So how did we get these modern chapter divisions? At some point, somebody had to have said, I'm going to start dividing up these books of the Bible into chapters. Who did that and why did they do it? There were two people who actually went after that job, after that work. There was a fellow named Archbishop Stephen Langton. And around the same period, Cardinal Hugo de Sancto Caro Olé. <laughs> they both developed different schemes for the systematic division of the Bible in the early 13th century. That, by the way, would be the 1200s, for those of you who are following along. It is the system of Archbishop Langton on which modern chapter divisions are actually based. And the first person to divide the New Testament chapters into verses was an Italian-Dominican biblical scholar, Santi Pagnini. He was alive from 1470 to 1541. However, his system was not the system that was ultimately adopted. He was just the first person to take the time to sit down and start dividing each of those chapters into verses. It was a guy named Robert Estein who created an alternative numbering system in 1551 in his edition of the Greek New Testament. He was actually printing up and publishing a Greek New Testament, and he thought it would be easier for scholars to read and to study if there were not only chapter divisions, but versification. It's his system of verses that we still follow to this day. The first New Testament to use the verse divisions was a 1557 translation by William Whittington. He was alive from 1524 to 1579. The first Bible in English to use both chapters and verses was the Geneva Bible. The Geneva Bible was published in 1560. These verse divisions soon gained acceptance as the standard way to notate verses, and they've been used by nearly all 
English Bibles and the vast majority of Bibles in other languages ever since. So, okay, now we know how the books were broken down, but why these books? Why these 66 books? This is what we call the canon. The canon is a collection or a listing of books. How did the church fathers decide that these were the particular books? Because you all know that there are other books. All you've got to do is turn on like A&E or the History Channel, usually right around Easter. And they'll start trying to tell you that there were hidden books, other books that were written, other New Testament books like the Gospel of Barnabas or the Gospel of Thomas. And they'll say, you know, those should have been in the Bible too. Okay, well, why weren't they? Why weren't they included, and why do we have these particular books? By the way, for those of you who are concerned that the Gospel of Thomas, let's say in particular, is not in your Bible, I could give you a couple of reasons why, why it's not canonical, but one of the leading reasons that I think you women would object to it is that the Gospel of Thomas also postulates that women cannot go to heaven. Those women who are saved, when they get to heaven, become men. That would be why it's not included. How did we get this particular canon? Christian Bibles on the planet right now still range from the 66 books that exist in the Protestant Bible to 81 books in the Ethiopian Orthodox Church canon. The Hebrew Bible, which exists on the planet today, what I earlier referred to as the Tanakh, they still refer to it as the Tanakh, contains 24 books. The first part of our Christian Bibles is the Old Testament, we refer to it that way, which contains at minimum the 24 books of the Hebrew Bible divided into 39 books and ordered differently than the Hebrew Bible. Do you understand what that means? It means if you got a hold of a Hebrew Bible and opened it, not only would you find a different number of books than we have in our Old Testament, but you would find them listed in a different order than in the Protestant Bible. The New Testament is the same for pretty much all Christian churches containing 27 books. Now, as we start reading through the Bible, as you start looking for evidences that it is the Word of God, several different times in several different places, you're going to see directions that say, don't add to it and don't subtract from it. God himself was very specific about the words that he intended to include in here, and he said, don't add to this, don't take away from this. There's a great quote from Wayne Grudem, he said, to add or subtract from God's word would be to prevent God's people from obeying God fully, because they wouldn't have the whole of his word, or they would have too much of stuff that isn't his word. Reducing or expanding on God's word is a way of keeping people from being able to obey all the instruction that God has intended for his people. In other words, everything that's in this Bible is what God intended to have in this Bible. He didn't leave out anything that you need to know 
So nor should you. You should always be willing to stand toe-to-toe -to -toe with everything that's in the Bible, which is the reason that we teach book by book through the Bible, so that we are exposed to everything that the Bible actually says. It's one of the reasons that I don't like so much preaching that just starts with a verse from the Bible, an out-of-context passage from the Bible, and then the pastor goes on to talk about whatever he wants to talk about. That is not a biblical education. In order to get a biblical education, a truly biblical education, you have to have context to what is said. One verse out of context can't teach you God's word as a whole. It can't teach you to think God's thoughts after him. And so whole books of the Bible, the entirety of the context, and don't take away from it and don't add anything to it. The Bible is fully sufficient in and of itself. Therefore, we pay attention to what the Bible says and everything the Bible says. The Bible testifies to its historic development and why these books are in the canon. When you start asking why these books and not other books, you'll actually find evidence right in the Bible. You can start deducing why books were included in the canon by reading those books. The Bible testifies to its own historic development. The earliest writing, let's see how much you can think here with me. What is the earliest writing of God on planet Earth? Ten Commandments. Job. Ten Commandments. <laughs> the Ten Commandments would be the first time that God himself wrote down his words. Wasn't a trick question. There was no trick to it. Granted, in the Pentateuch, Moses wrote about God writing the Ten Commandments, but he wrote about it after the fact. The first writing of God that we have historically is God himself writing his own word on tablets of stone. From that point forward, God continued telling people, this is my word, write it down. Okay, now we're going to start reading some Bible. Tom, if you would, look up Exodus 24.4. Leon, if you would, Exodus 34, 27, Micah, if you would, Numbers 33, 1 and 2, and I think we will also, if you would, Kellen, look up Deuteronomy 31, 24 to 26. Each of these examples is places where God said to someone, write it down. These are my words. These are my commandments. This is my law. Write it down. So it is God himself who commanded people to write his word. After he wrote his Ten Commandments, he then started using human beings to write down his words. For instance, Exodus 24, 4. And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. I'll tell you what. Start reading at verse 1 okay. and read all the way to verse 4. And then he said to Moses, come up to the Lord, you and Aaron and Nadab and Abihu and 70 of the elders of Israel and worship from afar. Moses alone shall come near to the Lord, but others shall not come near and the people shall not come up with him. 
Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules. And all the people answered with one voice and said, All the words that the Lord has spoken we will do. And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. So why did Moses write down all the words of the Lord? He wrote them down for the people because the people couldn't get near to God. So God tells him, write it down. If you write it down, you're more likely to remember what I've told you. Don't trust your memory. Write down all my words and laws and statutes and take them to the people. Leon, I believe you have Exodus 34, 27. Then the Lord said to Moses, quote, Write down these words, for in accordance with these words, I have made a covenant with you and with Israel. So God didn't just make a covenant and then assume that Moses would remember all of the rules, all the standards of the covenant. Instead, God very specifically said, write it down. Because according to these particular words, these particular promises, these particular parameters, this is what my covenant looks like. So write it down so that you can tell the people what the covenant is. In the book of Numbers, Numbers 33, verses 1 and 2, if you would there, Micah. These are the journeys of the sons of Israel by which they came out from the land of Egypt by their army, armies under the leadership of Moses and Aaron. Moses recorded their starting places according to their journeys by the commandment of the Lord, and these are their journeys according to their starting places. Okay, now that's really interesting because now God has gone beyond saying, okay, these are my words, write down my words, my covenant, my law, write those down. Here, Moses is writing down the travels of the tribes of Israel. Where do they start from? Where do they go out to? And he was commanded by the Lord to write that stuff down. So why do we have Old Testament history? Because God himself saw that history as important and told Moses, start writing it. Write it down. If he hadn't told Moses to do that, we wouldn't have it now. But because God specifically said to write it down, we can read all that history and God's dealings with Israel and God's covenants and promises and law with Israel. And Paul in the New Testament says whatever was written was written for our edification, for our learning, for our instruction. So it was God's intention that the travels of Israel and his dealings with Israel all be written down for the purposes of teaching generation after generation after generation what God's like and how he deals with people. We would not know that if we didn't also have the history. But we have the history because God said, write it down. Deuteronomy 31, 24 to 26, if you would, Kellen. It came about when Moses finished writing the words of this law in a book until they were complete that Moses commanded the Levites who carried the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, saying, Take this book of the law and place it beside your, the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God, that it may remain there as a witness against you. Not only does God instruct them to write stuff down, but then God tells Moses to tell the Levites, This stuff that we write down, store it. Keep it. Lay it up with the Ark of the Covenant. Now, the Ark of the Covenant is the most religious object that they have. That's the golden box 
where the appearance of God comes down every day of atonement, this is the holiest object. It stays in the holy of holies. And they're told, oh yeah, and the word of God that is written down, place that with the holiest object. Do you start to see how God glorifies his own word? He says, take my words, which I have instructed you to write down, and put them with your holiest object. Okay, so part of the way that we have the canon of the Old Testament, part of it is that God told specific people to write, to keep record of particular things, but also they were instructed, lay it up, hold on to it, keep it. So part of the way that God preserved the Old Testament was to give it to a particular group of people and then told them to treat it as completely separate from everything else on the planet. Treat it as the holy word of God. That's one of the reasons that to this day we refer to the Holy Bible. The word holy means to be separate, to be sanctified, to be unlike anything else in the world. Right away, as soon as God began telling people, write my word down, immediately God told them, and treat it as separate. Treat it as uncommon. Treat it as holy. Lay it up with the holy objects. Oh, should we read some more? There are others, usually prophets, who then write additional words from God it wasn't just Moses Tom look up 1 Samuel 10.25 Leon if you would 1 Chronicles 29.29 Micah if you would 2 Chronicles 20.34 Kellen 2 Chronicles 26.22 Steve 2 Chronicles 32.32 somebody else want to read Sure, Paul wants to read Jeremiah 30, verse 2. As we read through these verses, you're going to see God continuing over the course of history. As Israel progresses, God sends them prophets. And then when God speaks through the prophets, he tells the prophets, write it down. Don't just leave it to your memory. Don't just go and tell the people what I said. When I give you a revelation of myself or my word, make sure you write it down. That's what all these verses are basically going to say. For Samuel 10.25, Tom. Then Samuel told the people the rights and the duties of the kingship, and he wrote them in a book and laid it up before the Lord. Okay, so books like First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles, Those are all history books. Those are all the history of Israel, the history of their judges, ultimately the history of their kings, the division of the northern and the southern tribes, the succession of sometimes good kings in the southern tribes, the succession of always bad kings in the northern tribes. The reason we have those books and know that history is because God specifically said, write it down. Start writing. 1 Chronicles 29.29. Now the acts of King David from first to last are written in the chronicles of Samuel the seer, in the chronicles of Nathan the prophet, and in the chronicles of Gad the seer. Why were they all written down? Because of what Tom just wrote. Because of what Tom just read. He didn't write it. (laughs) Because of what 
Tom just read. God said specifically, keep your history. Write down your history. Write down the Chronicles of the Kings. It's one of the reasons that we still have all this stuff. Second Chronicles 20, 34, if you would, Micah. Now the rest of the acts of Jehoshaphat, from first to last, behold, they are written in the annals of Jehu, the son of Hanani, which is recorded in the book of kings of Israel. See, these things were all written down, written down. The history was kept on <coughs> purpose because they were told to write it down. Write it down. Who's got Second Chronicles 26-22? Is that you? Yes, sir. Now the rest of the acts of Uzziah, first to last, the prophet Isaiah, the son of Amos, has written. Okay, so this is one of their kings, and that kingly succession was written down by Isaiah the prophet because most of the books of the Old Testament you will find were written by prophets. And in a moment I'm going to tell you what happened when there were no more prophets. You know what happened? They quit writing scripture. Second Chronicles 32.32, I think that's Steve. Now the rest of the acts of Hezekiah and his good deeds, behold, they are written in the vision of Isaiah the prophet, the son of Amos, in the book of the kings of Judah and Israel. You getting the picture? The point is the Bible itself tells you how the Bible was written. As you're reading the books of the Bible, you can look at the various resources that the Bible provides to tell you how it is that these particular words, this particular history, this particular theology, how was it all written down? It was written down by particular men in particular places who are listed in the Bible so that you can actually get a bibliography of the Bible from the Bible. You understand? Yes, sir. Yep. Pretty remarkable. Jeremiah 30, verse 2. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, write all the words which I have spoken to you in a book. There you go. The God of Israel says, write down all the words that I have told you, Jeremiah. Write it all down in a book. That's why we have the book of Jeremiah. That is the way that the whole of the Old Testament works. The whole of the Old Testament was written by prophets who were told by God to write stuff down. That's why we have an Old Testament. The Bible is both history, but it is also theology that gives you insight into what God is doing during those various historic events. So not only do we know the history of Israel, but we also have insight into God's thinking with how he's dealing with Israel. Why does he occasionally punish them? Well, we're not left to wonder. We're told specifically what their sin was, what they had done, how they had rebelled, and how God, in keeping with his own nature, his own character, and his own promise, he then ends up punishing them because he's keeping his own word. Point is, God is true to his word. If God says something in his word, we also find examples in his word where he keeps his word, which was written down in his word. Did I lose anybody? No. <laughs> so you get a good sense for who God is, what God is like, as you read through God's own word. That's part of the reason that God keeps saying, write it down. Write it down. Because if it's written down, and a few hundred years later, 
God punishes Israel for their misbehavior, for their rebellion. God can always say, I told you I would do it. You wrote it down. You knew that there'd be punishment for your rebellion. There's no surprise here. God is true to his word. The canon of the Old Testament was added by prophets who not only wrote about what happened, but they provided additional information concerning the background and the spiritual implications of what actually happened. And the Old Testament was preserved because it was given to a particular group of people who protected it and preserved it with their appropriate reverence because, after all, they saw it as the holy word of God. They laid it up with their holy objects. That's why the Old Testament was preserved down all these thousands of years. The Jews continued keeping this history of the Jewish nation But then eventually, there were no more prophets. During what is called the intertestamental period, there's a 400-year gap between Malachi and Micah, where during those 400 years, roughly during the time of Grecian dominion until Rome conquered Greece, during that period of history, you find no scripture at all. And the reason you find no scripture during that 400-year gap is because God stopped sending prophets to Israel. One of the greatest judgments that God can put on any people or nation is to withhold his word. When God stops communicating, nations perish. For 400 years, God withheld himself, withheld his prophets, withheld any new revelation. But the Jews kept keeping records. They still wrote their history, which is why we have these intertestamental books that are known as the Apocrypha. That's a word that means the hidden or the esoteric or the spurious books. They're not canonical. They're not God-inspired. They're just the history of Israel. So they used to bind those books and keep them with their religious books, but they kept them separate from their religious books. If you were to read some of these apocryphal books, you would read about why they are apocryphal. You would read why they're not included in the canon. It says it right in the books, for instance. One of the apocryphal books is 1 Maccabees. First and second Maccabees tells the story of Judah Maccabees, which means the hammer. It's the time of the Maccabean rebellion. It's the time of Antiochus. First Maccabees, chapter 4, verses 45 and 46, which were written about 164 BC, says, And a good counsel came into their minds to pull it down, lest it should be a reproach to them. Because the Gentiles had defiled it, so they threw it down, and they laid up the stones in the mountain of the temple in a convenient place until there should come a prophet to give an answer concerning them. Israel was very aware that they did not have a prophet. So even in their fighting against the Grecian dominion of the Middle East, 
when they had to decide what to do with previously holy objects, when they tore those objects down, they didn't know what to do with the stones, and there was no one to tell them what to do with the stones, because they didn't have a prophet. 1 Maccabees 9.27, written about 160 B.C., says there was great distress in Israel, the worst since the time when the prophets ceased to appear among them. So even the Jewish history books written by the Jews about their own experiences include several references to the fact that they don't have any prophets anymore. There's no more Jeremiah, there's no more Isaiah, there's nobody to guide us, to tell us what God has said. There's nobody to write down the words of God, to give us instruction, to tell us what we ought to do. 1 Maccabees 14.41, therefore the Jews and their priests are happy to have Simon and his descendants as their leaders and their high priests until a true prophet appears. Okay, well, that's roughly 150 years before Jesus walks on the planet. You open the book of Matthew, and what do you find right at the beginning of the book of Matthew? John the Baptist. There's a prophet in Israel. God's talking again. Suddenly things need to be written down again. Suddenly there's new scripture again. And then Jesus, who is our prophet, priest, and king. So there is ultimately a prophet, but there's a 400-year gap there where God has said everything he's going to say to Israel, and he just leaves them to themselves. In fact, Josephus, the Jewish historian who lived between 39 and 100 A.D., so he is contemporary with the New Testament stuff. He wrote this. It's a relatively long quote, but stay with me here, and then we'll uh, get close to wrapping it up. He was saying of the Jews, For we have not an innumerable multitude of books among us, disagreeing from and contradicting one another as the Greeks have, but we only have 22 books which contain the records of all the past times which are justly believed to be divine and of them five belong to Moses which contain his laws and the traditions of the origin of mankind until his death this interval of time was little short of 3,000 years But as to the time of the death of Moses until the reign of Artaxerxes, king of Persia, does that sound familiar? We're talking about the time of Esther now. Until the time from Moses until Artaxerxes, the king of Persia, who reigned after Xerxes, the prophets who were after Moses wrote it down, and they wrote down what was done during their times in the following 13 books. The remaining four books contain hymns to God, those would be the poetry books, and precepts for the conduct of human life. It is true, our history hath been written since our Taxerxes, very particularly, so he's saying that's the time that the prophets stopped, right during that time after Esther, right during the time of Ezra and Nehemiah. It is true that we wrote our history since our Taxerxes, very particularly, but it has not been esteemed of as like authority 
with the former of our forefathers. In other words, the apocryphal books don't have the same canonicity and authority as the stuff that was written by our forefathers and our prophets. Because there has not been an exact succession of prophets since that time. So in other words, the lack of prophets was the reason for the lack of canonicity of the books that were written after the time of the prophets. And how firmly we have given credit to these books of our own nation is evident by what we do. For during so many ages as have already passed, no one has been so bold as to either add anything to them or to take anything from them, or to make any change in them. But it has become natural, or an instinct, to all Jews immediately from their very birth, to esteem these books, to contain divine doctrines, and to persist in them, and, if occasion be, willing to die for them. Okay, that is Josephus telling us why these books of the Old Testament are in our canon. Because they were handed down by God through the prophets, that gives them an imprimatur that other books simply don't have. And even the Jews who were under instruction to contain, to maintain, to write these books, knew the difference between the books they were writing, their own history, and the books that God was responsible for. So even though they kept the books of their own history, they regarded, lived by, and were willing to die for the books that we have in our Old Testament. And that's why the deuterocanonical books, that's why the apocryphal books, are not in the Old Testament according to evangelical versions of the Bible. So we see that around 95 to 100 AD, Josephus states that the contents of the Old Testament were written between the time of Moses and the days of Artaxerxes, who was the king of Persia from 465 to 424 BC, and that places it right around the time of Esther and Ezra and Nehemiah, and according to Josephus, the Jews recognized 22 books as the scriptures of the Jewish Bible. He saw the law, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, five books. The prophets, Joshua, Samuel, Kings, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel. The books of the twelve, which were Hosea to Malachi. Those all together he considered seven books. And then the writings, the Psalms, the Proverbs, Job, Song of Solomon, Ruth, Judges, Ecclesiastes, Esther, Daniel, Ezra, Nehemiah, and Chronicles, those were ten books. So that's how he had them divided up as the books of the Old Testament. In our modern Protestant Bibles, many of those same books are divided up into several books. Samuel becomes First and Second Samuel. Chronicles becomes First and Second Chronicles. Ezra and Nehemiah became separate books, just like Ruth and Judges became separate books, though they were originally considered to be one book. And, of course, Jesus and the New Testament writers continually quote, and this is important, if you're nodding off, stick with me right here. Jesus and the New Testament teachers continually quote from the Old Testament over 296 times. You find 296 quotations from the Old Testament in the New Testament and not one from any of the apocryphal books. 
So they also didn't see those as God-inspired books. What are the books of the Old Testament Apocrypha? That would be First and Second Esdras, Tobit, Judith, additions to the book of Esther, the wisdom of Solomon, Ecclesiasticus, Baruch, the letter of Jeremiah, the prayer of Azariah, Susanna, Bell and the dragon, the prayer of Manasseh, and First and Second Maccabees. Those are the books of the Apocrypha, which, by the way, are still contained in most Catholic Bibles. The New Testament authors, Jesus, the early church fathers, as well as Hebrew sources, all reject the Apocrypha. However, in 404 AD, the Bible was translated into Latin because of the dominance of the Roman Empire, and Jerome was given direction by the Pope to create what we know as the Latin Vulgate. Jerome was forced to include the Apocrypha, but he would not include it as part of the canon. He just simply included it as part of the collection of books. And in 1546, at the Council of Trent, the Catholic Church declared the Apocrypha to be Scripture. Notice that God did not design it to be Scripture, and the evidences within the Bible say it's not Scripture, but you can't fight with the Pope. And so the Pope declared, 1546, that the Apocrypha was Scripture. Do you know why he did that? He did it in response to the Protestant Reformation that Luther had begun on October 31st, 1517. And so since the Protestant Bible didn't include the Apocrypha, the Pope said, here, hold my beer, watch me do this. <laughs> I don't know if that's going to make it to the internet or not. <laughs> the Pope said, oh yeah, I'll show you. Since you don't include the Apocrypha, I will. That was his motivation for including it. It wasn't because he found internal evidence that the Apocrypha was actually Scripture. He just simply included it in response to the Protestant Reformation. For those of you who don't know what the Protestant Reformation is or know much about it, in this series, we're going to talk about all of that because we are back to the beginning. Protestants, meanwhile, you and I, collectively, us, Protestants argue that something is scripture based on the evidence that can be found directly from the word of God. Catholics, of course, say the church decides. If God then is sovereign, and we believe that God is sovereign, we believe that he's in control of everything within his universe, if indeed he is sovereign, then he directed history in order to include the books that are now in the Old Testament. So we believe that the Old Testament is God-inspired, God-ordained. Next week we will talk more about what that inspiration means and what it looks like. The method for preserving the Old Testament was to have those books guarded by a particular, relatively small group of people who considered these words to be God's own word to them specifically. It was written in a language that was specific to them. God communicated to them through their language. However, the New Testament was written in the most common language in the then present world and was preserved through the sheer number of copies that we have. And we'll get into that more next week.
So what do the New Testament authors think of the Old Testament? What is their commentary on the Old Testament? It's not enough to just say, well, they included quotations from the Old Testament over and over again. But Paul at one point in writing to Timothy, in what we call 2 Timothy, actually took the time to explain what he thinks, what he is convinced, is the very nature and character of what we call the Old Testament. 2 Timothy 3.16 all the way to chapter 4 verse 5. You should be familiar with this and then we'll call it a morning. All scripture. Remember where we started? Ta Biblia. The Latin is scriptura. Sola scriptura. All scripture. The Old Testament. Is inspired by God. The Greek compound word that Paul uses is theonostos. God breathed. breathed. You hear the word theos right in there. That's the word for God. God breathed out his word. It is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. That the man of God may be adequate. Equipped for every good work. By the way, he's talking about the Old Testament. The New Testament doesn't exist yet. Next week, we'll talk about New Testament canon. But he's writing about the Old Testament. And he says everything in the Old Testament was breathed out by God and is profitable for us today. Remember, Paul said what was written was written for our understanding, for our teaching, for our edification. So everything in the Old Testament breathed out by God is profitable to us for teaching, which is why we've taught through the Old Testament. For reproof, for correction. That means get your mind right. Bring your mind into comporting with what God's word has already said. You do that through being reproved, by being corrected, and God's word, the Old Testament, is adequate to do that for you. For training in righteousness. Yes, it includes the Torah. It includes the law of God. It is able to teach you what righteousness looks like. So that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. So here's what he writes to Timothy. I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and by his kingdom, I exhort you to do this. Preach the word. That's what we preach. We don't preach ourselves. We don't preach our adequacy. We don't preach our philosophy or our man-made ideas. We're told to preach the word. Why? Because it's God-breathed. It's the very self-attesting word of God. Therefore, preach the word and be ready to do it all the time. Be ready in season and out of season. And use it for what it's meant to be used for. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. Paul wrote that a couple thousand years ago. I think it's still true. 
People go to church these days and they don't want to hear sound doctrine. They don't want to hear the preaching of the word. They want to be entertained. Most of the church these days is not feeding sheep. It's entertaining goats. But what we're instructed to do is preach the word. Use the word to reprove, to rebuke, to exhort. Do that patiently and instruct, instruct, teach. For the time is going to come when they don't endure sound teaching. But wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance with their own desires, and they will turn away their ears from the truth, and they will turn aside to myths. But you, be sober in all things, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, Fulfill your ministry so as committed Bible-believing Christians, we approach the text of God with certain assumptions. We say the word of God is inerrant, sufficient, and fully inspired, and that is where we'll pick up next week. Got it? Got it. Are you overloaded? Look, I didn't get to talk last week. Are there any questions about all that? Are you glad you were here? Yes. All right, good. Well, then, if you want more of the same, you know where to get it next Sunday. God willing, and I live, that's where we'll pick up. We'll talk about the New Testament. And then we're going to start looking at evidences from the Bible itself that prove axiomatically, undeniably, unquestionably, that it is the very word of God. Because if it wasn't the word of God, it couldn't say the things and do the things it does. That's right. So we're going to look at axiomatic proofs. We're going to look at subjective proofs. And we're going to look at objective proofs that just can't be argued with. You can't fight with them. So that ought to be enough to bring you back. Let's sing, Steve. Let's sing like a river glorious.
you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace Sunday morning message. We invite you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org for weekly updates, books, Q&As and our ever-expanding audio archive. Join us again next time as we delve into the Word of God and study His sovereign grace.